Do you live, work, or play in downtown Baltimore? The Charm City Circulator travels through some of Baltimore's most charming neighborhoods. And best of all, it's free. Our transit service is convenient, reliable, and eco-friendly. Feel free to circulate. Visit CharmCityCirc.com. Do you live, work, or play in downtown Baltimore? The Charm City Circulator goes everywhere you want to go downtown. And best of all, it's free. So let us take you there. Visit CharmCityCirc.com. That's CharmCityCirc.com. Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views and this week we are going back into entertainment law and our guest this week is Nina Amiri and she is the principal of Amiri Law in uh, Laguna Beach, California. So welcome into Garden Views. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Chef. Excited to um, speak with you and uh, share um, what's going on in the the ever-changing world of Hollywood. Yeah, so I guess uh, we can start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself, your your four one one, as as they say. So I'm a Los Angeles native. Um, I went to undergrad at UCLA, and um, I always knew that I was interested in the film and television business, having grown up um, in LA, in West Los Angeles. But I myself have ne- never been very creative. Um, so I tried to find a way to still be part of this, this industry, um, but on the business side. And, um, I did some, did some kind of research and I learned that, um, you know, most, uh, contracts in Hollywood are actually negotiated by lawyers. Um, and so I applied to Pepperdine Law School, um, in Malibu, California. And while I was at uh, Pepperdine, I took every single entertainment law and intellectual property class that I could. I served as the president of the Pepperdine Sports and Entertainment Law Society for two years. And I really immersed myself in the business. So um, my passion, you know, started pretty young. Um, and for almost 20 years now, um, I have worked in several d- different entertainment law firms. Um, advocating for writers, directors, producers, um, pretty much any kind of content creator, influencers. And then in October of 2019, I decided to start my own firm, Amiri Law. And we have offices in Beverly Hills, California, and Irvine, California. Um, However, we service uh, content creators all over the U.S. So um, that's, I think, one of the, the most interesting things that's happened after the pandemic is that L.A. Hollywood is not the only place um, where uh, creators can 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 make a living um, in this industry. I have clients all over. All right. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations for all of that and then the growth and the success of your uh, firm. It's not easy to start one up, period, let alone start one up uh, in your own name. Um, so... In the world of entertainment law, what are we basically talking about? Like, what does your average day or week look like? What kind of what kind of work are you looking at on a regular basis? So my work consists of drafting contracts, negotiating contracts, strategizing about how to structure deals, and how to protect 
and license intellectual property. So think of it as, you know, kind of phases of a project. I usually start in the development phase um, where maybe there's only a, a script or a treatment or a lookbook. Um, and then we move into production um, where we're now attaching talent, writers, directors, and then the final phase, which is distribution. Um, and essentially at that point, we are licensing the completed content, whether that's a film or pilot uh, or podcast, whatever the, the IP is. Okay. So, uh, you know, most of what I think probably people my generation know about uh, Hollywood agents is probably some combination of what we got from Jerry Maguire, which was sports, and the show Entourage. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, obviously those are, you know, caricatures and, and probably over the top, but I don't know. How, how close are those shows, at least in any way, shape, or form, to the reality of, you know, what, what, what day-to-day life is like? So let's, I think it's important to make a distinction between the different reps um, that artists have in the entertainment industry. So on one side, you have managers and agents, and their job is a little bit different in that managers are engaged to guide somebody's career in the entertainment industry. Um help them, you know, kind of decide what projects to take on, develop them as an artist and a creator. An agent's job is to actually procure employment. This is a very important distinction because in California, only a licensed agent can procure employment for talent. Then what we have on the other side are entertainment lawyers or sports lawyers. Like in in Jerry Maguire, that was a film about, about sports. And lawyers are really there to um, review contracts, negotiate deal points, um, enforce contracts, um, whether it's you know sending demand letters or actually litigating cases. So I think a lot of people are, are, are that you know maybe are not in this industry are confused about what lawyers and agents and managers do. They don't do yeah. the same thing, and most established. Um, entertainers have all three of them. So they don't just have a lawyer. They usually also have a manager and an agent. Um, I think that that movie, Jerry Maguire, um, is, is typical insofar as, as it showed, you know, how intense negotiations can get. Um, and kind of the egos that are, that are in this industry. I think that, it was pretty accurate uh, on those two points, but it's not always as glamorous and, and fun. Um, this is real work, and these are these are multi million dollar deals in some instances. So it's it's serious work. So as much as you know, entertainment lawyers like to have fun and agents and managers, but we're we're working really hard for our clients. Um, and so th- that's you know, I think that's the misconception people have that we're just having fun and you know, you know, popping bottles of champagne all the time. That That's not, that's right. not accurate. It's not red carpet uh, parties with the uh, hosted by Dolce and Gabbana every night. I mean, you know, you go, you know, I've, I've been to my Christian Dior fashion shows. I've been yeah. to those, those events. 
but it's not the day in day out. No, it isn't. Okay. It's just not. I mean, this is serious work and you know, lots of money is at stake. So, um, I think that's the part that, that people get confused about. Well, let's take those pieces then separately. So the, the manager, I, I mean, I noted that you said that the agent needs to be licensed. I'm assuming the manager maybe does not. And, you know, we've all heard about people who their manager is their friend, their parents, you know, you know, they're, yeah. they're their brother or sister. So the manager, I guess, can be any anyone. But is there any sort of standard contractual uh, arrangement? Is it, a, is it commission based? Is it hourly i mean imagine that it's probably commission based was there like a, a standard percentage that the ma- a manager would get that if it's too far in the other direction you know that either they're trying to take advantage of you or they don't know what they're doing yeah you're right jeff um there is a uh, a contract that governs the relationship it's called a, a talent management agreement um generally it is a anywhere from you know, a, a 10 to 20% commission, I would say 20% is, is a little bit on the high side. Um, 10 to 15% is, is probably more customary. And I think that a lot of times, you know, those percentages really can be uh, shifted based on what is the stature of the artist. So obviously if somebody is coming into this business fresh and they've never worked in Hollywood before. Um, they have no credits. That manager is taking on significant risks, right? Because they're going to spend a lot of time developing them and they're probably not going to see, see any income for, for quite some time. So there maybe it would make more sense, you know, to, to have a higher commission. I think that as you grow, as you have more credits, um, that percentage generally will go down. Um, what I have seen is, you know, there, there are folks that have been able to get by, um, in Hollywood with either just a manager or just an agent. So it's sometimes there is a point in time where maybe you're not getting value from one rep over the other. And, and, you know, these commissions, they add up. Agents under in California, um, their percentage is locked in at 10%. And then let's say you're at 15% with your manager. That's 25%. Right. Some lawyers work on a percentage. Some work hourly. Some work flat fee. I personally do all three. I have different models. On the percentage model, the industry standard is 5%. So let's think about that. If you have all three... You know, 5% to the lawyer, 10% to the agent, 15% to the manager, that's 30%. That's a significant chunk of your income. And so, you know, at at the end of the day, if you're getting value, then then it's a no-brainer. But, you know, there are people that have been able to thrive in this industry with just a lawyer and an agent or just a lawyer and a manager. I have no idea what this person's particulars are. I'm just picking someone that's been famous most of my life, but from, you know, basically a youth to a, you know, now a middle-aged man. So I would imagine that the agent or the manager who first represented Tom Cruise when he was doing Taps or Red Dawn uh, probably had a bigger 
percentage. But now that, you know, it's, it's you're on Mission Impossible 37 or whatever it is that, that, you know, they, they might get two and a half percent now, but it still equals a whole lot more money because Tom Cruise now gets a whole lot more money per, per project. I mean, yeah, when you're talking about A-list actors, you, you know, they're in their own kind of world mm-hmm. and, and the rules that, that apply to everybody else, they're, they just, they're not going to, they're not going to apply. And the majority of, of, you know, actors, writers, directors, they're not that, that status. I mean, that is like literally 1% of Hollywood, right. you know, the majority of people working in this industry are, you know, everyday people. They are not, you know, these mega stars. Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of times people are reading the trades or, you know, New York times or whatever it is, and they're getting these ideas about, you know, how the business works. And it's such a micro percentage of people that are at that level and can command those salaries and that, that kind of negotiating power. Yeah. And you see some of the people jump from one place to another. Now, now some of them, they probably had credits that, you know, someone like me didn't really see to, to get them to the point where I finally saw them. Like I'm thinking about Anya Joy Taylor, who is unquestionably a movie star now, but you know, when she was 16 or whatever, she did the movie, the witch she was, she did, I think she was, uh, had a small role in the new mutants and the queen's gambit. And then from there, you know, it's been sort of no stopping her. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there would be, you know, any difference, but I, I know what you mean that there's, you know, I call them working actors. There's these faces that you see and, and, you know, you see them in, in bit roles and, you know, and, you know, I, I used to joke about whenever I would see British shows, I love watching British shows because if you watch any two British shows back to back, you're going to see at least two or three of the same actors in, in everything, every single show. And sometimes you're going to see the lead in one show have like a 10 minute role one of the saddest things that I experienced, which I mean, I'm exaggerating, is that Tommy from Power, I, I saw him on an episode of, I think it was Chicago PD, and he's like one of the stars of Power, which was a pretty successful show, and he had like a 10-minute role in Chicago PD. And I'm like, oh, that's sad. Um, yeah, I did, my husband is just now watching that show, and I've caught glimpses of it. It reminds me of that show, The Wire. Uh, well, the wire is much better, but anyway, it's, it's not really about this. Yeah. The wire is much better, but it kind of had the same, I don't know, something, it was, it was similar. The genre was similar. Yeah. A little, um, little bit more soap opera. But yeah. You know, it, the problem with Hollywood is there's no guarantees. You can, you can be on a show for four or five seasons and you're the hottest thing on the planet. And then two years later, there's somebody else that has come up and taken your spot. So yeah. I think that there, there, there's just a lot of uncertainty and change all the time. Yeah, no, that's for sure. You see people that they're giant stars and, and then, then they go away and you just assume that they're living lavishly. And, you know, maybe they are, maybe they're not. I guess it depends how they invested or, or what kind of lifestyle that they, you know, they choose to live. Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that, that unfortunately is a common, common issue with, with celebrities and athletes is um, they don't always follow the advice of their business managers and financial advisors. And sometimes they get used to a certain lifestyle. They're able to afford it at one point in their life. Mm -hmm. And then they're not. 
And making that adjustment is not an easy thing for many people. Yeah. So, you know, you'll, you'll see them, you know, out and about living kind of like this, the same lifestyle that they've always had. Um, but yet they're not commanding the incomes that they once did. So um, I think that things are, are getting better, but, you know, in like the eighties and nineties, there were many, 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 uh, you know, celebrities that ended up having huge tax issues with the IRS. Yeah. Um, one person I can name is Wesley Snipes. Right. You know, he was one of the biggest actors and, you know, he ended up, you know, getting in the hot water with the IRS. So it's, um, there, you know, you get lifted up really high and then sometimes you fall down really low. Yeah, I remember when I probably about a decade or so earlier than that, Burt Reynolds was one of the biggest stars in the world. And then he and it turned out he was like broke or something. But I don't really want to get too much into the into the individuals, even though I'm the one who started that. Um, I, I would like to sort of know what are the points that are generally up for negotiation uh, where you come in? Is it is it the the rate? Is it the uh, per diem? Is it? Things like trailers, you know, you hear about stuff. I want my own trailer. Is it you want certain things in catering? Is it royalties? Is it you know back end on toys and merchandise and things like that? You know, so wh- where is it the the you know what what would be like the top five or ten things that you are involved in that you that you know involves most of your negotiation? Well, just to be clear, you know, we're involved in in every piece of the contract, so. The things that you're naming are all kind of tied to, I would say, compensation and stature. Yep. Um, and so, obviously, you know, rates are going to be influenced by what is your quote. And your quote is, well, what were you paid on your last film or TV project, right? So that's always our floor for the next project. And sometimes people are willing to work, for example, on an independent film for less than their quote. Um, but what we would always say is that this is non-precedential. So that that compensation, maybe it's less than what we've received, but we, it is not to be used or to be disclosed as a floor for your next film project. The next kind of major negotiation point is always going to be uh, back end, net, also known as net profits for a future film, also known as modified adjusted gross receipts in connection with a television or new media project. And this is an area where, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, um, kind of figuring out, you know, what is everybody else involved getting in terms of back end? Um, sometimes, um, you know, there there's a really small pot of, of, of money because the producers may be deferring their fees. And if they're deferring their fees, then that means they don't want to give out a lot of back end. Right. Um, you know, one of the other uh, issues that, that, you know, Originally, when there were more movies that were having theatrical releases, we would always ask for box office bonuses. So if we hit certain thresholds, 5 million, 10 million, 15, whatever, we would get a little, a nice little check. 
if the film was um, nominated for an Oscar or Golden Globe, there could be a bonus. If he won a uh, Best Actor um, or Actress, uh, um, you you could also get a bonus. Um, nowadays, we often ask for streaming bonuses. Yeah. So if we enter into a licensing agreement, if the producers enter into a licensing agreement with, with Amazon or Netflix, then um, there's going to be certain thresholds uh, where if, the, if we hit those, the, the, those numbers are hit for a all-out licensing buyout, um, then again, we're going to get a bonus. So we spend a lot of time figuring those numbers out and, and what's you know reasonable and customary. Um, credit is always you know an area where, especially if you're an actor, um, the positioning of your credit. So are you first position, second position? Are you going to have um, a shared card? These are all things that are that. You know, a lot of people that are um, not in this business, they they turn off the movie when the credits start. But for us that are in this industry, those credits, those that's the building block, and that is the foundation of your career. So we spend a lot of time uh, on on that negotiation. Um, you mentioned, you know, per diems. Um, you know, they're generally speaking, they're they they usually try to to treat everyone the same, except for maybe the A-list actors. Um, but of course, you know, we ask for, for special things, whether it's a private car, uh, to and from the set. Um, we certainly will ask for, uh, you know, a, a private dressing room, uh, for talent, um, or an office if you're a producer. Um, and then we get into what I consider kind of the more boilerplate um, clauses like an indemnification clause, reps and warranties. These are things that, you know, a, a lot of people kind of just gloss over and don't look at, but they're very important. And as entertainment lawyers, we spend a lot of time marking those up and making sure that our clients are protected no matter what side of the deal that they're on. Um, what kind of issues and, are you concerned about? Are you concerned that the actor says, you know, in their in the script it says Jeff Lippman is a dirty, rotten scoundrel, and I would get upset from that. That and I sued. Let's just keep using Tom Cruise, and I'd sue Tom Cruise for that. And obviously, he didn't write the script, and he's not the well. Maybe he's the producer, but well, no. This is more that you know that in that scenario, you wouldn't even get that far. <laughs> I wouldn't I think. think. <laughs> No, because someone would clear the script before it was um, authorized to go into production. So if there was anything that was potentially going to trigger um, a suit for defamation. Um, now, if, it, if we're writing a comedy, then, then that's different. It's a joke. If you're Satire, writing doing right. a documentary and you say something like that, that can be an issue. Um, but yeah, one of the common things is... In a writer contract, the rep and warranty that the story is original to the writer. Ah, so if okay. I'm representing a production company, that's very important to me, right? I want to make sure that, hey, you didn't steal this from some other guy or the, you know, the underlying work. Maybe the story was co-written with someone else, but now you're warranting and representing that, no, I have the sole rights to it. So it's those little, you know, nuanced issues that, um, you know, they're not glamorous 
but they're, they're very important. And as entertainment lawyers, it's our job to, to make sure that the drafting um, of these provisions is favorable to our clients. Right. No, no, that's that's a great example of of something that that maybe somebody wouldn't necessarily think about the you know copyright infringement that you were saying. This is this is yes. this is mine, and if it turns out that it's not mine, I'm the one that's going to take the heat for it, not you. Um, so yeah. Uh, all right. You know, there's two major cases out there, and they're completely different animals. One is Scarlett Johansson with the Black Widow, and the other is what's going on and what happened with Rust. I don't know, you know, if you can speak to either of those two things, um, but you know, obviously both involve, you know, Scarlett Johansson, absolute A-lister in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, the you know the 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 top of the mountain, and you know, especially then, COVID strikes, Disney Marvel decides to put it straight to their Disney Plus streaming. Um, and I, you know, I guess she has an issue with that, even though the whole, you know, half the world was closed and, and, you know, and she figured that she was wronged. They had a fight. She sued. They settled, worked it out, and now she'll be back in the universe. But, you know, that is a very simplistic way of putting things. What, what were the issues there? What was she upset about? And, you know, and, and, you know, trying to explain it to us in from an entertainment lawyer's perspective. Well, I mean, the issue there is that, you know, a film like that is, is generally going to have a very wide theatrical release. And because of that wide theatrical release, the talent is going to earn significant compensation because as we discussed earlier, there's going to be built into their contract a bonus structure for hitting certain box office receipts. So in this instance, being that theaters were shut down, um, you know, and the, the, the studio decided to move forward with, with the release and, you know, uh, release it on a streaming platform rather than waiting for things to open up. Um, and I think that the issue for her was that, you know, that was not what our contract said. Now, I don't know what the force majeure clause in her contract said. Generally, there's going to be a clause in every contract that talks about a force majeure event. And a contract can be suspended for a period of time, for example, during a pandemic, during a strike, and until it resumes, um, you know, basically the, the studio has the right to suspend everything. So I, I'm not a, a familiar with, with the details of her contract, but apparently they were able to move forward with it. Um, and because of that, I think that the film, you know, maybe didn't garner the, the wide, uh, audience and, and, and the box office and other bonus opportunities. Um, and so, you know, she was, she felt that, you know, she had been, you know, uh, the contract had been breached essentially. Do you, um, do you, have but, a, you know, litigating so, these things is never in the studio's interest right. because they don't want people to know <laughs> what their contracts say. Right. And I think that she was probably compensated pretty well and, and, and that's why she settled. So, 
we, we're not going to really know the ins and outs of, of, of what well, we know, kind of the big picture issues, but I guarantee you there's some other things out in that, in that deal that we don't know about. Right. And, you know, the, all these streaming services, this is something that's new, especially when the studios own their own, they have their own streaming services or they own parts of them, or in some cases, more than both, you know, some combination. So, you know, they're enriching themselves, but there's really no way to quantify if one movie or one television show uh, is a source of revenue or profit for a particular streaming service. I'm not even sure if any of the streaming services uh, have have seen the black yet anyway. Um, but I would imagine that 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 has to be of some concern and that folks in, in on, you know, in, in your position have strategies to deal with that. I guess maybe it would be more upfront money rather than more box office or, or whatever the case might be. Well, most of the, the streaming deals these days are buyouts completely and they don't want to pay any residuals or, or any, any bonuses. Um, you know, and so a hundred percent it's that, that initial number is what we spend the most time negotiating. Um, it is, it's a critical piece. Now I represent a lot of independent filmmakers and when you're dealing with an independent film, um, you have a very small window to, to negotiate your, your, it is not a, this endless period of time. And as time goes on, generally speaking, the value of the IP will, will de decrease. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, when, when we walk into those negotiations, um, we have to be mindful that do you live, work, or play in downtown Baltimore? The Charm City Circulator travels through some of Baltimore's most charming neighborhoods. And best of all, it's free. Our transit service is convenient, reliable, and eco-friendly. Feel free to circulate. Visit CharmCityCirc.com. Do you live, work, or play in downtown Baltimore? The Charm City Circulator goes everywhere you want to go downtown. And best of all, it's free. So let us take you there. Visit CharmCityCirc.com. That's CharmCityCirc.com. In two weeks or three weeks, there's going to be another movie that is potentially the same, a similar genre. And that, that you know, that, you know, uh, you know, seller, um, is going to be willing to, to take a deal. I think the last couple of years we've seen, um, especially independent filmmakers just really, um, I want to say, you know, they're just not getting the deals that they used to. And I think that's why we're, we're finding, you know, so many people in Hollywood are just kind of fed up with the system and they are willing to, you know, back away and take a pause until, um, they can achieve equity in their contracts. Okay. How about rust? How, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that situation is just a tangled web between civil liability and criminal liability. But like, what should have happened there? And if we know what went wrong? Rust is the movie that Alec Baldwin, I think he's the producer, oh, as a star. Rust. Yeah, yeah, okay. I thought you said Lost. I said Lost. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. Our... Rust. I mean, that was a, a horrific, horrific situation. Um, 
and I can't speak about it too much because I did represent someone that was involved in ah. that film. But um, it was, it was a, the, the case was about negligence and who is responsible. Is it, you know, it, how many levels of liability are we looking at here? So you obviously have the, um, the handler of the, of the weapon. Um, they're called the armor. You have the um, assistant to that armor that is also, you know, checking the weapon. Um, you have a um, usually a, you know, either a camera operator or a director or somebody else that is there in that in that moment and and kind of watching all of the steps. And then ultimately you have the producer of the film who is sometimes, you know, on the set. Sometimes they're not on the set. Right. Um, in this instance, I believe Mr. Baldwin was also an actor in the movie. So he's wearing two hats. So I personally don't know if he was even in the scene on the set when the incident happened. But like anything... You know, when there is a um, an injury, a death, it is always going to be the, the scenario that all parties that could potentially be held liable are going to be named in the lawsuit. Sure. And, and that's just litigation strategy 101. Right. So it's not surprising that he was named. It's not surprising it's the production company's name. That is all, you know kind of the mode of operation. Um, I think there's also generally, and I'm not saying that's what happened in this case, but we always try to look at, okay, who are the biggest, you know, um, pockets? Sure. Of course, the deep pockets. And that's, and that's totally, you know, logical that, that you would want to, um, you would want, the, the person that's able to pay the damages and the claims um, to be held liable for it. I think that the the question that really came from, from that incident is why in 2023 do we have to have real guns on sets? Uh, I didn't know that they use live ammunition. Yeah. And I think that was the, that's the discussion that started way before. This isn't obviously the first time that something like this has happened. It's, the first time that it got such widespread, um, you know, uh, coverage, um, and I think it's because of the parties involved, and it was because there was a death, and it's sure. a horrible thing, and it, it it's it's a chilling thing when something like this happens. But the conversation about using real weapons on a film set that's that didn't start with that movie. I think that what tends to happen and I almost feel like that's what's happened here is over time we're not we're not hearing you know more about any kind of changes or legislation or new protocols and I think that that that's an unfortunate thing that you know you would think something like this would you know would really um you know garner some kind of widespread and immediate change and it hasn't um and I think that's kind of just, you know, not to get political, but that that's that's a bigger issue in, in our culture and our society is 
um, when these things happen, violence, um, because of guns, you know, there's a lot of talk the first couple days and months, and then it kind of, you know, goes away. Let's bring that to a little bit of a micro level, and 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 this is just ancillary to us. But does somebody like an armor, like this, like the cinematographer, like the set, you know, whatever the the, the grips, the gaps, all those sunk? Do they have agents, managers, and entertainment lawyers like yourself, or are they sort of in a different boat? So anybody um, that is working. Um, consistently as, for example, a, you know, a cinematographer, um, or assistant director or editor, those folks generally all have an agent. And I would say maybe like 50% of them will also have a lawyer if they're working on very high level, uh, film and TV projects. Many of their contracts, um, you know, are, are kind of boilerplate in, in, in comparison to, for example, writers, directors, and producers. And so some agencies have like an in-house business and legal affairs that will go through and mark up their deals. So I would say, you know, depending on what level of stature the, the, the below the line um, individual has, they may or may not have an agent or lawyer a lot of times if they've just been in the business a long time they're getting they're getting called directly by the producers like hey we're shooting next month are you available right do they have what role does the unions play i mean i know that there's a bunch of unions or maybe there's it's one that has different uh yeah. um, aspects to it but what role does the union play in in these negotiations at all or is it or do they just try to build upon the template contract so to speak you know, so all of those roles, editors, you know, cinematographers, um, they are all members of a, a specific um, unit of IOTSI. Um, and there are, you know, rules and minimums that anybody who is a member of one of those guilds um, is entitled to as their kind of minimum compensation. And so when you are working with higher level 80s cinematographers, um, you know, a lot of them will be union. And what is interesting, what people don't know is that if you desire to hire one union member for those below the line categories, then the entire project is going to be governed by the union. And everyone needs to be paid according to those minimums. So most of the, the, the bigger projects are going to be governed by IATSE. Uh, but a lot of independent films, especially films under $5 million, are not. And it's because independent film um, productions, they cannot afford uh, the minimum compensation. And they usually, you know, you know, all... all you also have to pay pension and health benefits. Mm -hmm. So between those two, two things, it becomes impossible for them. Um, and that's, that's a really hard thing because obviously we want, um, everyone to have fair and equitable pay and benefits. Um, but there, 
there is oftentimes just not a budget um, in a in a smaller under five million dollar film to do that. Well, that I guess will bring us to what may end up being our last topic because it's so big. And even though these shows are designed to be evergreen, it's the middle of July in 2023. And there's one of the larger uh, Hollywood and entertainment industry strikes in mem- in recent memory, mine anyway. Maybe it's just because of the, as we were talking about uh, pre-production, uh, maybe it's just because of social media and then 24-7 news. But I don't remember a, a strike that involved so many people all at the same time. But what what are the main issues? What what are what are they striking for and what are they seeking? You know, I, I understand that there are some set rates. I, I guess they want to get those minimums up. But what, you know, uh, uh, streaming seems to be something that people are talking about. They seem to be concerned about AI. AI terrifies me on a whole bunch of levels. Um, but uh, we don't. Yes. Uh, Including Elon Musk. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he's pretty close to it. So maybe, uh, maybe it's called them nasty names. I don't know. But, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I feel like every science fiction movie ever has sort of told us what we should be watching out for. And yet we're walking right into the, uh, right into the quicksand. Anyway, uh, what, what are the primary issues that they're striking over? What are, what are they seeking? And I'm sure that there's a million little issues, but what are like the big ones? Well, yeah, let me kind of walk walk through kind of the, the basics of, we'll start with the, the WGA strike, which is the Writers Guild of America strike, because that is what, what uh, you know, what triggered all the current strike, which is the SAG, the Screen Actors Guild strike. But everything started in May um, uh, of 2023 when, um, the Writers Guild um, was essentially uh, forced to go on strike because they were unable to come to a new agreement um, between the WGA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So they're referred to as the AMPTP. Um, and they represent, you know, all of the big studios and the streamers. So the big, the big dogs that, you know, that, uh, that run, essentially run Hollywood. Um, and, you know, the, the main issues um, uh, were, you know, residuals for the writers, um, as well as, you know, the use of artificial intelligence, um, because, you know, like, like every other industry, um, this is now, you know, a huge, huge issue. Um, how is AI um, going to be used? And um, so most of the strikes are taking place in either Los Angeles or New York City. Um, the WJ East governs New York and the East Coast, and the WJ East uh, uh, represents uh, the West Coast. Um, and, you know, the, the goals ultimately are that writers are going to receive more compensation. So the minimums that they're paid, um, whatever form of media it is, whether it's the project is going to go um, to a streamer or a studio, um, or it's going to be going into syndication, 
they want to receive higher basic minimums. They want to have, you know, greater job security and know that, you know, if they're brought on for a project, um, they're not going to, you know, spend one month there and then get immediately replaced. The, the, the lack of stability and job security is really preventing a lot of writers from, from having, you know, somewhat of a, of a stable income. Um, and there is also a goal of increasing the size of writers' rooms. So over the years, especially the streamers, this is this has become a, a bigger problem with the advent of, of Amazon and Netflix. You know, the writers' rooms have decreased significantly. And um, most, most recently, um, there has been a lot of concern about using artificial intelligence to replace writers. Um, and so, you know, there's probably um, close to, you know, 10,000 members um, of, of the Writers Guild. Um, and, you know, they, it's, in, it's interrupted um, production on all, you know, major television shows, um, whether they're on, you know, the big, the big networks or the streamers, um, any um, show that has tried to uh, shoot while, while um, the strike is taking place. Where there's outdoor work to be done, there's Echo Outdoor Power Equipment. Echo products deliver the reliability, quality, and performance you need to tackle everything on your outdoor to-do list. From chainsaws and string trimmers to leaf blowers and edgers, Echo's full range of pro-grade outdoor power tools are built to meet the demands of outdoor work. Visit us today, your local Echo dealer. Learn more at echo-usa.com. Echo. Power on and on. The, the members have kind of you know, uh, organize themselves to go and strike at that location um, to cause, you know, chaos and, you know, bring awareness um, and publicity. Um, and so, you know, the, the negotiating committee, you know, I think spent quite a bit of time going back and forth before the strike and they were not able to um, secure a deal. And so, um, they were the writers. Writers were pushed into a corner. And after about a month after the Writers Guild went on strike, the Directors Guild um, did. You know, they had some similar issues, but they were able to negotiate a deal. And I don't know the terms of that deal, but um, so the Directors Guild was. There was a at, at some point during the strike, there was a belief that they were also going to go on strike, but they did not. And they have now negotiated a deal, which I think negatively impacts the writers because um, I think there would have been more leverage if all three of the unions had gone on strike. So now we have um, the strike that just started last week. Um, and um, we're, we're now four days into this, you know, the SAG AFTRA um, strike. And again, it's caused by similar issues disagreement over streaming residuals um and then the issue again of using artificial intelligence um to scan artists uh, actors faces and to generate performances um there is also this idea that 
once they got the right to uh, their likeness, that they could use it in perpetuity, which is the most absurd thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, And so these are, these are really, really serious issues. Um, And, you know, I think the actors um, and the writers being in solidarity is ultimately, um, you know, that is the best leverage because now Hollywood is really shut down. You know, it was one thing when the writers were striking on their own, because if, if a script had already been finalized, you know, the, the, the strike would prevent any changes from being made in that script. But let's say you had a, a project that was greenlit, the script was final, you could now, you could still go into production because you're not writing everything. But now with the screenwriters go on strike, you have no one to to be in, in those roles other than non-union actors. Um, but, you know, non-union, non-union actors face a pretty severe penalty. Um, there is um, a literature out there that basically says that uh, you can prevent be prevented from ever becoming a member of of SAG if you if you cross the line and you work on on a production. Right. So um, that's kind of the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, it's you know all of these things have been brewing for for many years, and it just finally got to. I think I think generally there's an atmosphere in our country right now where people. With, you know, there's inflation, cost of living increases, um, you know, scarcity of, of housing, and people cannot live. And especially in cities like Los Angeles and New York, that people are not able to make a living. So it's not a surprise at all that this would come to a head. If you know them, what are some of the minimums that apply, like for a, you know a, a typical actor's rate or the, whatever the SAG minimum is, the or the writer's they're, minimum? They're, they're so all over the place. Oh, I mean, okay. you know, it is it is. I mean, you can if anyone is interested in, in reading the minimum basic agreement, it's a hundred pages. Oh, terrific! <laughs> okay, it is a hundred page document, and it is tiered out based on what type of media. So there's different rates for film. There's different rates for TV. There's different rates for new media. New media is, is defined as, you know, a project that's going to gather initial exhibition, um, on a, you know, on new media platform, which could be, for example, like Vimeo or something like that. It's based on what is the budget of the project. Um, so I don't, I have, I don't have those memorized, but it's it's easy enough. They're they're available to anyone um, on the wga.org uh, website, the sag.org website. You can see what the minimums are, and you can you know see for yourself. Could you live on these wages? Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Can I ask you a Adobe question? Video games have really changed since I played video games. When I played video games, that you know it was all graphics, or whatever. But now they have like their stories, and they have movie stars and, and athletes and stuff. Is that covered as well under these types of contracts? Is that considered acting like you're making a movie or, or straight, like straight to video kind of thing? If it's a, I don't know, Call of Duty 7, like I know Ronda Rousey's in some and, and, and Dave Batista and Bruce Willis has been in video games. And I, I mean, is that, uh, 
a SAG AFTRA. So I am not. I do not negotiate video game deals, so I don't. I am not the right person to answer okay. that question. All right, fair um, enough. But but yes, there is there is regulation of those things by the unions. Um, but I think there's also just a you know what is your name and likeness worth, and it's and most video games are using actors. They're going to be using very high level actors. So these issues that we're talking about, the high level actor don't really need to worry about the minimums because they're getting paid, you know, multi, multi million dollar. It's when you're using, you know, your, your kind of average, you know, just, you know, kind of new to the industry or just a working actor. That's where these negotiations become so critical. Right. If they have me as Palooka number four, you know, or whatever. No, I want to be a goon. No, I want to be a henchman. No. All right. Um, all right. There has to be something that I should have asked you that I didn't. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people call me and contact me and ask me, you know, what is the, the number one thing that I should do when I'm early on in developing a project? Okay, and a lot of folks, you know, creative folks like to work with their friends. And there's a good thing in working with friends because you know each other. Um, and I would assume that you have, you know, similar taste. Um, but the problem that comes with that is many times there are no parameters for how that relationship is going to work. And the, the lack of formalizing the relationship in a signed and executed contract probably consists of 25% of my business. Right. So 25% of my business is untangling people that work together to develop a project. Maybe one is a writer, one is a producer or actor, and they never really you know, sat down and figured out, you know, what is our deal and what is, you know, how are we going to split the pie and who's going to do what? And that usually ends up pretty bad. And then they have to come and see me. Um, and I have to essentially untangle them from each other. So I think that the, the most important thing that I can share with, with your listeners, um, and audience is that, it doesn't matter how long you've known someone. It doesn't matter, you know, oh, we just started. You need to have a contract. If you don't, um, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have issues down the road and the 2000 or $3,000 you spend at the beginning to make sure everything is buttoned up is going to be minimal compared to what you're going to pay if you have to go to court and litigate. Especially and so if you're I successful. You either pay a little bit now and you do it the right way or you pay a lot later to get out of the situation. And it's your choice. All I can do is give the advice, but it's, it's ultimately everyone's choice. That is, that is so true. And, and it applies to every business venture. But uh, if you're betting on success and if you're successful in the entertainment, sort of the sky's the limit. And so the, the, the bigger the knot, the, the more expensive it is to untangle it, I'm, I'm sure. Um, 
So if people have something they need untangled or they want to come see you or find you so that they never get tangled in the first place, if they have that contract, how, how would people find Nina Amiri? So um, you can always start with my website, which is uh, www.amirilawpc.com. That is A-M-E-R-I-L-A-W-P-C.com. Um, you can also find me on Instagram. I, um, I have a lot of videos and I have a lot of information I share. Uh, again, it's Amiri Law PC. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Nina and Amiri Esquire. Um, and um, my firm is growing. Um, I have two associates um, and uh, myself. Uh, and we work with you know people in all stages of a project. Um, and we have clients that are the beginning of their careers and we have clients that are seasoned. So um, if you find yourself um, needing um, help navigating this crazy business, um, if you need help protecting your content, licensing your content, we're happy to uh, have a conversation. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. And thank you for your patience in helping navigate me where I went astray, where uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. So thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you. I'll take that. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being in Garden Views. And folks, thanks for listening. And hopefully you'll give us a rating and a review and a referral. That's what we love. Tell your friends about us and you'll hear from us next time on Garden Views.
Where there's outdoor work to be done, there's Echo Outdoor Power Equipment. Echo products deliver the reliability, quality, and performance you need to tackle everything on your outdoor to-do list. From chainsaws and string trimmers to leaf blowers and edgers, Echo's full range of pro-grade outdoor power tools are built to meet the demands of outdoor work. Visit us today, your local Echo dealer. Learn more at echo-usa.com. Echo. Power on and on. Where there's outdoor work to be done, there's Echo Outdoor Power Equipment. Echo products deliver the reliability, quality, and performance you need to tackle everything on your outdoor to-do list. From chainsaws and string trimmers to leaf blowers and edgers, Echo's full range of pro-grade outdoor power tools are built to meet the demands of outdoor work. Visit us today, your local Echo dealer. Learn more at echo-usa.com. Echo. Power on and on.